I don't necessarily always take part of a special occasion Sundays, of course, this one being the 4th of July, but I like to a lot of times. Sometimes it's nice to have a break in our normal uh, MO. And uh, just think some about these holidays that we celebrate. I know they're, most of them are not ordained directly in the Scriptures, but, um, in fact, none of the ones we really celebrate are, but uh, it's still a precious time to look back and reflect. Uh, so with that, I'll say Happy Independence Day. Of course, this Thursday is 243 years since July 4th, 1776. And in those 243 years, uh, this experiment in government of the people, for the people, and by the people has flourished into the preeminent world superpower. I want to remind us, I think we know this, but it's good to hear it from time to time. Biblically, it's okay to enjoy a rightful, and I want to say rightful, a rightful kind of nationalism or patriotism. Uh, one of the highlights when we lived in Alaska, in fact, there's an air show coming up in Great Falls here in a couple of weeks, and we've always enjoyed air shows, and they had a, a good one up there every other year. But I well remember the first time I ever saw an F-22 uh, take off. I was quite a distance from the runway the first thing it took off, first time. And to see this jet plane shoot off the runway and be able to stop up there. And uh, the way their directional thrust engines work, they can do things that man couldn't have thought possible uh, not too many years ago. And I remember at one of those air shows sitting there, and these jets come roaring overhead with their bomb bay doors open. And uh, the announcer said, do you hear that sound? That's the sound of freedom. Now, humanly speaking, he's right. I remember getting goosebumps at the time thinking, Lord, thank you, those are on our side because they are a uh, fearful weapon. And I'm thankful for our military. Uh, I don't find anywhere in Scripture where somebody's rebuked simply for loving their country. It's when they imbibe in the sinful elements of it. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul is talking to this heathen multitude at Mars Hill. And he gives them some basic theology and he tells them that God had determined before the bounds of their habitation. In fact, he told them, God sovereignly with purpose put you in the nation that you were born into and that you grew up in. And he gives actually one of the reasons is that you should seek after the Lord. It's an amazing thing. I don't know how it all works out, but God apparently has placed us in the best position for us to come to know Christ. He didn't just throw you out there and hope you stick somewhere on the map. Every one of you is sovereignly placed in this country by God if you live here. It's okay to be thankful to have a love for where we've been planted. In fact, even in the millennium, I find it astounding that there will be some degree of national boundaries still retained. In Isaiah 19, it says, "...on that day, speaking in the millennial kingdom, shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land." Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, listen to this, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Egypt and Assyria, the work of God's hands and His people? Yeah, that's coming. Many other passages describe national boundaries in the millennium, obviously all of them under the headship of Christ. But on the other side, our nationalism has to be governed by the Scriptures. God doesn't sanction American arrogance. We're not better because we were born here. 
Do we need reminding this morning that God is not an American? There's no star-spangled banners waving in heaven. Now, I love the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm all for it continuing in this country. I think it's a good thing. But I guarantee you that Michael the Archangel did not get up and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag today. No, God is not an American. I remember this vividly illustrated back in December of 2007. It really was a fascinating thing when they launched the USS New York. It was an American warship, still is, and it was actually made from wreckage of the World Trade Center. And it's a fascinating thing. It really is. I think it's great what it stands for. However, some of the rhetoric was bothersome because some of what was out there regarding this warship was we're going to go take it to our enemies because we're worthy and we're better than them. We're going to rule the planet because we deserve it. We're better. We're Americans. Uh, no, that is not true. America has absolutely been raised up for specific purposes in God's plan. There's no question. And a huge part of that uh, has been that the gospel's been sent to the ends of the world. But the day is coming when the stone cut out without hands in the book of Daniel that's the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to dominate the entire earth from the literal city of Jerusalem. Now, I wonder if I were to pose the question this morning in this nation that we love and should love and be thankful for. What one word summarizes the greatest characteristic of life in America? Depending on your background, you might come up with some different words, but I think probably the most given response would be one word. It would be the word freedom. Freedom. I had the privilege a few years ago of flying over the Statue of Liberty, which in my opinion was the way to see it, the small plane. I didn't have to wait in line or climb seven million stairs in blazing heat. I got to fly right over the thing. I remember thinking at the time, what that must mean to people coming here. The statue of what? Liberty. It's been a beacon to so many. All right, how would you define freedom? Well, now there's another story, isn't it? It depends who you ask, and I don't think most Americans are on the same page with one another. Ask the average person on the street. You like freedom. You live in a free country. What is freedom? One might say, well, it's the absence of overbearing government restriction. <clears throat> Another might say, having more laws to keep the reckless from destroying the planet through carbon emissions. Now, somebody might say, freedom is open capitalism, which I would say amen to that. The Bible, by the way, is not communistic. It is capitalistic. That's another topic. Alarmingly, we have an increasing number in our country that would say freedom is socialism. Isn't it amazing, 50 years ago, if any politician mentioned that word, it was their political death. And now we have an open contingency. I'm a socialist. And so you have millions, particularly the younger generations, that think freedom is the government paying for everything for me. They don't seem to get that the government doesn't actually make money. It takes money. But beside, note, I heard an amazing statement by a prominent politician this week. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
We need to stop punishing the millennial generation for doing the right thing and seeking higher education. And what was meant by that is it's not fair that they should pay back their student loans. And I remember hearing that thinking, I'd like to ask some questions. First of all, did you know that was a loan? Did you sign your name to that loan? And now whose responsibility is that loan? In fact, I thought, maybe it's time the bank stopped punishing me for doing the right thing and buying a house. It's pretty nasty. They ought to make me pay my mortgage. All right, I'm going to get off that soapbox. But you know what I'm saying? Some would say, socialism is freedom. As long as the government pays everything, that we're free. Some would say freedom is not being forced into a particular state religion. Some would say it's not having a worship banned. Others would say freedom is having religion banned from everything, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. How about getting to vote or be involved in government? Freedom of speech, saying what I think without censor, except on Facebook. Uh, how about the right to bear arms? Is that freedom? Generally, people would say it's the right to do as I please, fill in the blank within certain boundaries. All right, now those do, some of those describe freedom in a limited sense, but here's where I'm going with this. All those definitions I just gave really fall far short and miss the mark of God's definition of that word. When God offers you freedom, what is He talking about? Let's not forget the devil is a semantics expert who would love to redefine God's terminology and make it mean something that it really does not. All right, what's the problem with those definitions? And again, those are definitions of freedom in a limited earthly sense, but that's just it. One of the problems with all the things I just said, they're completely earthbound in their perspective. In other words, all those things we just talked about completely neglect the spiritual aspects of bondage and freedom. John 8 is an interesting chapter. Jews are very angry with the Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, is the chapter in which he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he says to these Jews, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You'll be truly free. Some of you may recall their response was not very cordial. Rather than asking for a clarification, or rather than joy saying, I can have freedom, what was their response? We were never in bondage to any man. Their response was, how dare you say I'm in shackles? How dare you offer me freedom? When I'm already free. I dare say you'd get a similar answer from most people in this free country. Were you to stop them on the street and say, I have good news for you. You can be free. And they might say, I was never in bondage to anyone. Don't offer me freedom. I'm my own man. I do what I want. I live where I want. I work where I want. I drive what I want. I spend what I want. And I eat what I want. Despite the chains spiritually that are hanging off of them 
weighing them down. Like the Jews of old, they just don't see it. So a lot of definitions of freedom, number one, are earthbound. They neglect the spiritual and eternal part. Secondly, they they tend to be humanistic in scope. They're dominated primarily by how it affects me. In other words, freedom is me-centered. Freedom equals me doing what I think and what I want. So in other words, in the center of the freedom universe would be me. And it all revolves around myself. Thirdly, our definitions of freedom tend to only recognize the removal of boundaries not the addition of a greater authority, which, by the way, is part of the Bible's definition of freedom. It's not the removal of boundaries. It's not the removal of authority. It's the addition of the right authority. This morning, that's what we're talking about, is those words by the Lord, free indeed. And just three basic points. The definition of freedom, the cost of freedom, and The choice to live in freedom. Are you there in Romans 6? Lengthy introduction, but we will look at this passage and we'll look at some others also. Romans 6. Let's think about these three deficiencies I mentioned. The fact that freedom is primarily a spiritual question. Now, if you'll recall, in New Testament times, somewhere around one-third to one-half of the Roman Empire, now estimates vary, but it was up in the tens of millions, One-third to one-half of that entire population were slaves. So, a first-century church meeting. Let's say you take a group like this. One-third to one-half would be owned by another human being who was most likely a lost person. In fact, that was part of the issue in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul was rebuking Corinth about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. And he talked about those that had abundance and they came and they feasted and they shamed them that had not. You have to remember there were people that came to this church meeting that were slaves and they were not legally allowed to own anything. They had literally nothing. When they came to a fellowship meal, they could not bring anything because they owned nothing. And Paul's observing you have the group of the wealthy over here, and they've got their table overflowing. And then you've got the brethren that are slaves. They're sitting there at an empty table just watching. Paul's saying, how dare you do that? By the way, side note, many are bothered that the Bible never directly opposes slavery. Slavery is a reprehensible practice. There's no question about that. But the Bible does acknowledge it as the system of the day. And the Bible is not a referendum on social reform. The Bible is concerned with eternal things. While slavery is horrible, it's like the greater question that's being addressed is, what does temporary freedom matter if you are in eternal bondage? Remember the little book of Philemon? Here's Onesimus, the slave, is converted and he's told to return back uh, to where God had placed him. But I wonder, what is our great oppression? Oh, there's all kinds of worry about the upcoming election. It's going to be a nasty one. Hotly contested. I think it's bothersome when I can't have my children watch a lot of these debates lest they learn terrible habits and bad language. 
But our great oppression is not governments. It's iniquity. It's that by nature we are chained to the devil, we are bound in wickedness, and we are powerless to change. Secondly, these definitions of freedom, I mentioned, are tend to be humanistic, self-centered versus God-centered. We tend to view freedom by how it affects me. Now look at, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but that ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Look at verse 18. But then made free from sin. What's the next statement? Ye became the servants of righteousness. You mean God delivers us from servitude into servitude? That is exactly right. See, the Bible definition of freedom is not the ability to pursue my own ambition without restraints. The Bible definition of freedom is being set free from the incapacitating domination of the devil in my own nature so that I can be free to fulfill the purposes for which God placed me on this earth. In other words, true Bible freedom has God as its chief end. You and I were not set free from sin for ourselves. You and I have been set free from sin for God. That's why we have a new nature that's so desperately needed. I mean, what's the final end for the believer? It's to actually, think about this, can you actually picture a day when your duties and your desires are joined together perfectly forever? You see, you and I can't even fathom that. I mean, you realize in heaven, there will be no such thing as an unfulfilled desire. There will be no such thing as a painful kind of waiting. There will be no need to do battle with the forces of darkness. Not only will you be sinless there, but you won't even be able to sin. It's not even possible. It's an astounding thing. It's one of the glories of heaven. And listen, it's not because God brings us to a place where we get everything we want. It's because we are finally so brought onto the same page with God that there's no division anymore. The curse is undone. I mentioned thirdly that Wrong definitions of freedom only recognize typically the removal of boundaries and authority and not the addition of a greater. And typically a person will say freedom means less rules, less restrictions, less people telling me what to do. <laughs> Young people sometimes want to move out of the house. Why? They're going to be free. I remember uh, the book written by Jerry Ross. I thought it was, in fact, I laughed about it because he said, Young person... Let me tell you how to spell freedom when you turn 18. And then he spelled responsibility. Uh, you that have been adults for a bit, you know how true that is. Uh, freedom equals responsibility. Do restraints go away when you reach adulthood? Not hardly. They change a little. 
Alright, once again, Romans 6.18, notice, being made free from sin, what happened? Ye became servants of righteousness. When God moves in the lives of men, He doesn't only take the wrong, He replaces them with better things. We think of many passages. Old, old music that used to defile us becomes a new song. The old nature is destroyed. We're given a new one. Old nature destroyed, not eradicated, but dealt a death blow so that we can conquer it daily. Takes away our works of darkness, gives us new works to do for Him. Takes away our miserable burden of sin, places that on Christ and gives us His perfect righteousness. How about the concept of freedom, though? Here's what happens. The authority of sin and devil is removed, but a greater authority is put in their place. See, freedom isn't only the absence of the wrong boundaries and authority. Bible freedom is the addition of the right authority. The addition of the right boundaries is actually freedom. Bible freedom is not the absence of a master. Bible freedom is the presence of the right master. You see, here's the deal. You and I, mankind is incurably a servant to something. There's no such thing as a truly free person. We serve something. And God takes away the fruitless, horrid servitude to sin and replaces it by the noble, pure, right, Holy service to the one true God. By the way, this is a lot of the problem with a modern issue of so-called Christian liberty. Huge segments of Christendom think that Christian liberty means now that I'm in Christ, I can do what I want. Christian liberty is the freedom not to sin. And it's the freedom to serve God without that dominion. And it's the freedom to give up my liberties when necessary for the sake of others. It's vastly different than how it's often portrayed. Heaven is not marked by bliss apart from the dominion of God, but it's marked by bliss because of the dominion of God. Here Adam and Eve were sold a bill of goods, weren't they? Your eyes are going to be open, you'll be like God's. And what, what was he saying? You're going to be truly free. Just partake of this fruit. Freedom will come. Did freedom come when they ate? Peace and joy went out the window. Joy departed and the world's been in chaos ever since. I, Revelation 22.3 is one of my favorite passages in that book. Now here's what it says when the curse is reversed. There shall be no more curse, but... The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. What's the opposite of the curse? The opposite of the curse is not just sin taken away. The opposite of the curse and the cure for it is God's throne fully established without question over all creatures. That's the opposite of the curse. By the way, that's a good test of who you belong to. Let me ask you this morning. When you think of serving and enjoying God forever and being His servant forever, how do you respond to that? Do you buck and fight against that? I've actually read blasphemous statements by unbelievers. They'll say, you know something? I'd rather burn in hell than spend the rest of my eternity kissing up to God. 
You talk about a hellion who has no idea what God is like. You see, the changed nature wants to be like God. Now, we have struggles where you say, I can't picture myself doing it because I'm so sinful. I share that one with you. How wonderful to know the sin nature is going to be gone. I'm going to be able to serve Him like He deserves. It's going to be my delight and your delight to do His will all the time. You won't have to be forced to do it. All right, 1 Peter 1. Let's turn there quickly. 1 Peter 1, 18. God's definition of freedom is it's God-centered. It's not the removal of boundaries. It's the addition of the right boundaries and authority. What's the cost of freedom? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It was in 1964. I think it was May, if I remember right, of that year. Did I say 19? I meant 1864 if I said 19. 1864. Uh, when a Union soldier named William Henry Chrisman was buried on the grounds of the confiscated estate of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And in fact, that was the sending of a loud political message. And uh, they confiscated Robert E. Lee's property and his wife loved to garden. And they began burying Union soldiers right in their flower gardens. Their plan was A, to send a message, and B, to dissuade them from ever returning to the estate whenever the war ended. Apparently it was successful because today we know that plot of land is Arlington National Cemetery. And it's been filling up with America's slain in battle and veterans that pass on for the next 155 years. On average still today, roughly 30 veterans a day are still buried at Arlington. And what they're saying is that within 25 years, it will run out of space. I don't know if you've been there. I would love to go there someday. Incredible place. Approximately 1.3 million Americans have lost their lives in combat defending this nation and giving us our temporal freedom. And not to mention the countless others who've had their lives permanently altered. And we ought to thank them. If you're a veteran here, thank you. But as costly as that is, as wonderful as that is, that cannot buy eternal freedom. It was Theodore Roosevelt who made this statement. Now listen to this carefully. He said, a man who's good enough to shed his blood for his country is good enough to be given a square deal afterwards. If I'm understanding him correctly, what he's trying to imply is that military service renders a man deserving of God's favor. While military service is quite commendable, let me remind us, nothing we do renders us deserving of God's favor. What is the price of two true eternal freedom? Look at this passage. For as much as ye know, verse 18, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. 
as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. What's the price of real freedom? You and I aren't bought back from sin's slave market with anything lower in character or value than God Himself. Nothing man-made. Not of human hands or blood or merit, strictly speaking. And not religion. I hope you're not here this morning because you think this church can save you. It cannot. And no professing church can. In fact, any church that says it can save you is not a church. It's a satanic phony. You weren't redeemed by tradition. You weren't redeemed by some human sacrifice. You weren't redeemed by how sincere you were, how many tears you cried, or any other things you could think of. See, the bottom line is Cain's offering will never do. What did Cain offer? He offered the works of his own hands. Here, God, take this. Aren't you impressed? Mankind sins, and what does he do? He makes fig leaf aprons. He's going to take care of the sin problem. And of course, there in Genesis 3, God slaughters an animal. The first time they saw physical death must have shocked them. They couldn't have known that concept. And he covers them with his coat of skins, and what's he teaching them? Something innocent must die to pay for the sins of the guilty. You cannot cover your own sin. I'm going to send a Savior into the world that's going to permanently take care of the sin problem. Of course, the precious blood of Christ in verse 19. It had to be one who was dear enough to his father to be considered a sufficient price to pay. One who was holy enough to meet the demands that a righteous God required. And that who could live the life that was required. One who was powerful enough to take the infinite weight of divine wrath in a few indescribable hours and rise again as captain of our salvation. Oh, there could only be one who could sacrifice like that. And see, that's the marvel too of eternity. We'll never understand. We'll never understand how great that cost was. You've heard me say it before multiple times. I find it fascinating. There's one set of scars in eternity. Just one. And they're on the Son of God. And oh, to think someday, if you're a Christian, someday you remember... Uh, Thomas got to place his hands in those nail prints. And he got to thrust his hand into the Lord's side. Now, I don't know for sure, but I just, I just think that you and I are going to get that opportunity. Not to prove anything, for there we know he died and rose again. But to thank him, to think about that cost. Remember that forever. All right, the definition of freedom, the cost of freedom, and thirdly, basic point, it's really your choice to live in freedom. Back to Jesus' words in John 8. In fact, just before that verse I quoted, here's what He told these Jews. He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. And then he says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You'll be truly free. But he was telling them, you aren't free right now. You're the servant of evil. 
My friends, I know the Declaration of Independence is a wonderful document and I'm thankful for it. But from an eternal perspective, when it comes to dealing with God, there is no such thing as a Declaration of Independence that does not end in disaster. Man tries that in the garden. I don't need God. Cain tried it when he went out from the presence of the Lord. At the flood, man declared his independence from God. I don't need a boat. I'll save myself, thank you very much. The Tower of Babel man declared his independence by trying to build a society where he himself reigns supreme. Ironically, man's been in the cruelest form of bondage ever since. Right now, beneath our feet, presumably, there are multitudes in hell who are never going to get out of torments except for the final judgments because they left this world declaring their independence. You see, you can never be free from a master. But the question is, do you have the right master? If you're here today and you've never personally trusted Christ, listen, you are the devil's lackey and you are a puppet on a string and you are dominated by your wicked nature. You want proof of that? Stop sinning. You can't. You see, you can't see the chains. You look at your wrists and you don't see the marks. You don't feel the weight around your neck. You look up in the sky and it looks friendly to you. It looks blue today. What does God see? If you're outside of Christ, storm clouds of judgment are gathering. You're laden down with iniquity. You're storing up wrath unto the day of wrath. Your hands are very heavy with chains. You're heading for judgment. What's the word of the Lord to you? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Let me say something to you young people that are sitting here. It's a good thing to be raised in a Christian home and taught the Bible. It's very good. But let me challenge you on something. Here's pastor's children over here. They're not going to heaven because their dad's a pastor. Some of you children out here, you're taught the Scriptures. You're trained according to the Bible. That's a wonderful thing. But let me ask you something. Have you personally trusted Christ? You personally. Because I guarantee you, in the day of judgment, your parents are not going to stand up and give a word to the Lord for you. There's one central question for you. And many can grow up in a Christian home and all that they heard from this book condemns them. Because they sat in church and they heard the Bible at home and they spoke Christianese and they had the right wardrobe and they did things in the church, but they're going to hell because they trusted in what they knew and what their parents were and they never knew God for themselves. Lots of people in hell sat in Sunday school. Lots. No, you have to trust Christ for yourself. Everyone does. Right? Somebody says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I have 
trusted in Christ alone, that's wonderful. Let me ask you another question. Are you free today? Are you free? I read an article from uh, May of 2018. It was from the Pew Research Center. It was an interesting article. Here's what it was entitled. United States trails most developed countries in voter turnout. And uh, what the article did was give a listing of these various developed countries and the percentage of their adult populations that actually show up to vote. The top of the list, in case you're wondering, is Belgium with an almost 90% voter turnout. In case you're wondering further, America ranks 26th after Slovakia, Ireland, and Estonia. So just over half of our adult population, even in a high turnout presidential election, just over half of our possible voters actually show up to cast a vote. Now, why is that? The reasons vary, I'm sure. By the way, I should tell you that Belgium has a compulsory voting law. You're legally required to vote. Well, that'll do something for your percentage, won't it? In fact, in 2012, Chile tried a little experiment. They also had compulsory voting laws, and they had an 87% voter turnout. And so they took away the law and said, you know what? You can choose. You don't have to vote. And voting plummeted to 42% the next year. Here's the bottom line, though. Although that kind of freedom is right in our hands, let's think of, imagine a politician got up today at the next debate and he said, okay, we need to limit who can vote. And he just began to throw out groups. Uh, whatever, you name it. Uh, if, you're, if you're a white male, you can't vote. If you're whatever national descent, if, uh, if you're an attorney, you can't vote, or whatever cross-sections he threw out, people would be absolutely indignant. No way! But half our population, in fact, well over half at midterms, behaves just like they live in an oppressive country, even though they have every right to walk down to wherever it is and cast a ballot. Isn't that ironic? But I wonder among the Lord's people, somebody came to you and told you, uh, you need to have some merit of your own. And you would say, oh, no, 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 I don't. You'd be furious. Somebody says, you have to sin. And you'd say, no, 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 I don't. The Bible says differently. But are you living in the freedom? That's been given to you. You know, it's very easy as a Christian to live as though we're still in bondage, isn't it? And really, the, the minute you and I try to declare our independence from God, can you do that as a Christian? Oh, yes. In a thousand ways. We forget that without Him we can do nothing, and our world begins to implode, maybe slowly, but certainly it starts to happen. Are you in bondage to some sinful habit? <clears throat> you know it's wrong. No, you shouldn't do it. But you've 
accepted defeat, even though freedom's been handed to you. Know ye not, Paul says, that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are. We yield to sin, we're sticking our neck out there and saying, here, stick the shackles right here. Are you in bondage to circumstances? Have you forgotten God's character and His loving kindness and His perfect wisdom? How about fear? Are you in bondage to fear? A fear hath torment, John says, and perfect love casteth out fear. Oh, we can forget, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but power and love and of a sound mind. Fear is guaranteed to take away your freedom in Christ. Guaranteed. Be careful for nothing, Paul writes. But in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Peace comes from that. Are you in bondage to your past? Some of us have done things in the past we're not proud of. I could give you quite a list. Some of us have had things happen to us. We necessarily couldn't necessarily control it, but let me remind you of this. Those things do not have to define you today. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. I'm crucified with Christ. The old me is dead. And the power that it had over you is dead. Are you in bondage to the elements of a former dead religion? Can that happen? Galatians 5.1, Paul tells these churches in that region, he says an interesting thing. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In their case, uh, they had a tendency to go back to Judaism, to go back to the Mosaic law for comfort. Many today, I think, sincere Christians can do the same thing, especially if you came out of an oppressive form of fake religion that was very merit-based. There's lots of them. I don't need to name them. But when you fail, you sin. If you think that you need to hang your head and feel guilty for a week in order to earn God's forgiveness, you're not standing fast in the liberty you have in Christ. You're going back to the vain tradition received from your fathers. There's no penance in the Christian life. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins in discussion. Go to Him and deal with it. You can't be sorry enough, you never will, and you don't need to butter God up. You just need to get on His side and deal with the sin. Are you in the bondage of prayerlessness? So deceiving, isn't it? We can feel so free. I'll figure this out. I don't have time to lay this out to God. I'm too busy fixing things. I'll start praying tomorrow. Never forget a statement I heard secondhand through another preacher, but here's what he said. A prayerless life is nothing more than a declaration of independence. Trust me, this can happen to pastors in seasons too. I'm just as fleshly as you. A day where we don't have time for God in communion, we may as well write up on the ceiling, God, I don't need you today. I'll check back when I do. It's a bondage. 
Maybe you're trying everything to find some sort of peace, but until you go to your master, your father, and your friend and pour it out, you're not going to find it. But here's the deal. You, you can be rich or poor, healthy or sickly, in a tunnel or on a mountaintop. Historically, especially in that first century church at Rome, you could be a free Roman citizen or a slave. Maybe they couldn't change that. But no matter your station, I tell you this, today, you can be free indeed. But you have to choose to take God's freedom. He'll not force it on you. Let's pray. And Father, we thank You for the, on an earthly level, the freedom, the precious, wonderful freedom we have in this country. Thank You for those that have fought and bled and died Lord, that we can even meet here right now without government regulation telling us what to preach, where to meet, when to meet as a precious gift. And we thank You for Your part in giving it to us and we thank You for the part that so many have played over the years at preserving it. Father, I pray You help us though in our walk with You. Do not accept bondage. Help us not to look at liberty and freedom as an a, a openness to pursue everything we want, but rather as a power to do Your will. Power to not sin. Power to discern Your commands and obey. Power to understand Your Word. Power to affect other lives for righteousness while we have time. Or do you say if the Son makes us free, we shall be free indeed. And I pray you'd help us to walk as those that are free indeed. In Jesus' name, Amen.